This, this passage, um, this chapter is really fascinating because, as, as you know, we've been walking through the book of John, or maybe you don't know if you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. Uh, what we're doing is we're walking through the book of John uh, from January 1st uh, up through Easter. Uh, the, we're going through the entire gospel of John, and the hope and the desires for our church is just to really saturate ourselves in the teaching and the life of Jesus, to see what he said, said to see, see how he did it, and, uh, and to try and orient and align our lives with Jesus. And, um, and so we come to chapter 12, and we're a little over halfway through the book of John, but it really this is a turning point where we've now entered into the final week uh, of the life of Jesus. And so from John chapter 12 up through 21, it's this extended look at what did the Savior of the world do the last week of his life? What were the things that he felt were valuable investments of his time? What were the things that he wanted to say and communicate to the people that he was, he was leading? And so it's a, it's a really fascinating piece. And, and when I look at John chapter 12, what I see is that it really has a lot to do uh, with motivation. Uh, people's motivations begin to be revealed in this chapter, we see Judas's motivation. We see the crowd's motivation. We see the Pharisees' motivations being revealed. And um, motivation is a big industry uh, in our country. It's something that, that, that we're all very familiar with. And, uh, and for most of us, there is nothing that is more motivating than an inspirational photo with some, some clever words attached to it. I can show you something like this, right? Leadership. The supreme quality for leadership is unquestionable integrity. Without it, no real success is possible. Uh, now, I happen to have on authority the fact that the Philadelphia Eagles at, at the Super Bowl, the halftime, they just stared at this poster for like 20 minutes. And that's how they got pumped up to win that game, right? Like, I can, I can sense that you guys don't believe me that that is true, right? So maybe some of you aren't into the motivational poster uh, way of motivating. If, if, that, if that's the case, then, then these might be more for you. Uh, something like this. Dream small. It's your only hope for success, really. Um, these are called demotivators. And <laughs> um, let's look at another one. We've got procrastination. Hard work often pays off after time, but laziness always pays off now. <laughs> okay. And we got one more for you here. This is an all-time favorite, and for those of you who know Gibson Largent, this one, he had this hanging in his office for a long time. Dysfunction. The only consistent feature of all of your dissatisfying relationships is you, right? So they're kind of poking fun at this whole idea that, that a poster can motivate us, right? And, and it kind of, it, it keys into this, this deeper concept that motivation, sometimes we think about motivation as like, we think of a motivational speaker as coming to our high school to speak or whatever. It's, a, it's this person that kind of gets you all pumped up on, on, man, they're not coming and they're laying out the whole truth. They're kind of just emphasizing the positive, just trying to get us to, to get our adrenaline flowing and get real excited. But, but there's an element in which we say, well, yeah, well, that, but that's not the real world, right? Like you're trying to fill my head up with all these ideas and thoughts, but, but no, I can't really be a Disney princess, and no, I can't, you know, I can't travel to the moon unless I've got billions of dollars. Like, um, there's so many things that we kind of, we make it, we act like motivation is something that's not realistic, but biblical motivation is something completely different than that. Uh, and Jesus uh, talks about this at length in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus lays out his greatest moment of teaching. And what he essentially says is he says, motivation is really, in, in a large way, what determines whether your acts are sinful 
or whether they glorify God. Motivation is, is what determines whether you're living a life that is pleasing to God. Because he said, hey, you, yeah, you may never have killed anybody. You might, have, you might be legally clean regarding that. But if you've had anger against your brother or sister in your heart, it's like you've committed murder in your heart. He says, you might not have committed adultery, but if you looked on a, a woman with lust, then, then you've essentially committed adultery in your heart. If, you're, if your motivations are wrong, then, then the actions are only as good as the motivations. You can do some really outwardly good-looking things, but they're done, if they're done with an evil and wrong and selfish motivation, then they're not actually good things, right? Uh, Richard shared in his, his testimony last week, right? He brought up the Jason Kelsey example, right? He, he had the right heart and spirit. It's just the words that came out of his mouth were not the things that I would take my children to hear, right? Like, but he intended, and, and, and what Richard said is, hey, I kind of lived my life in the opposite of that. I had the record of accomplishments and achievements, and I had the, the plaques and the, and the medals to prove it, but, but the motivation of my heart was all wrong. It was an effort of self-salvation. And so we have to continually question and, and look into our motivation. And, um, you know, I, I, I was, uh, I was in, a, in a situation this week, and it wasn't with anybody here at Riverside, but it was, it was something where I felt like I needed to say something. I needed to confront something that I didn't feel was right. And, um, but before going into that conversation, the hardest thing about it was not identifying what I wanted to say and how I, how I should say it and, and all those sort of things. It was it centered around these sort of questions. What's, what's motivating this? Uh, is this about my pride? Has my pride been wounded or, or, or my reputation been tarnished? And is that why I want to react to this? Is this about wanting to have control? Is this about greed? Is it just about wanting more for myself? Uh, has a false idol in my heart and my life been exposed? And am I really just trying to rationalize and defend it? Am I worried about someone else will think or say about me? Is it just selfishness, right? And so I went through these things, and, and, um, and, and my wife, uh, Katrina, helped me with this. And, and at one point she said, well, hey, after this conversation, like, what result do you want to come out of it? If, if this happens, will you be happy? And I was like, no. <laughs> Even though that's giving me kind of outwardly what it would look like I would want, it's not about that. It's about something different. And so she helped me to, to kind of do that. Um, Man, this is what we're called to be doing. To, when we go into things, not just the first thing that comes. We're not supposed to call, we're not called to act out of emotion or just react to things. But continually we should be questioning our heart motivation. Because if we get our motivations right, all those questions that I listed off to you, if I answer those questions correctly, then what I do is ultimately going to glorify God. And it is much more likely that I'm going to leave satisfied with the result of it rather than reacting emotionally and doing something that then I have to go back and apologize for and fix later on. And so there's something very practical and helpful here, but there's also something that drives us incessantly to the gospel and to the cross of Jesus, that without him, it's, it's impossible to have the right motivations. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to look at, we're going to, look at, uh, so we're going to begin by looking at some of the broken motivations, some of the, the areas where people were motivated incorrectly, and then ultimately look at, at the great example that we have uh, here of, of, of a heart that's aligned correctly with God. And so we're going to begin with um, this idea uh, that we see in Judas, and his broken motivation is, is exposed that he just wanted material gain for himself. 
He was in it to get more for himself. He, it's disguised with this, uh, this pretend that he cares for the poor, but really uh, his heart was for himself. What it, what it tells us in Scripture is that he was in charge of the money bags. He was, in, he was the treasurer of, of Jesus' group of disciples. And so, uh, so Mary makes this extravagant gift of this perfume to Jesus, and she breaks it, and, and it's, the house is filling with the odor, and she's using her hair to wipe his feet. And, uh, and Judah says, oh, man, well, what a waste. <laughs> we could have sold that and we could have taken all the money and given it to the poor. Now, Judas had this incredible track record of helping the poor and just he was always in the front lines of trying to help out those who were in need. Maybe there would have been a little bit more credence behind this, but, but, but ultimately what Scripture says is that he wanted more money to go into the treasury so that he could help himself to more of it. He had a selfish motivation. And I think we see this in our culture a lot, do we not? Uh, on, on Facebook, you're going through, and people operate in absolutes on Facebook, right? There's, <laughs> there's no gray area. People say things, and uh, they get passionate about things that, man, I just couldn't even imagine you could get passionate about. But for them, in this area, there is no leeway. And sometimes you just got to wonder, like, hey, is, are you really that passionate about that, or is this a reflection of some deeper motivation? Is there something else that's going on here? There's so many times when, when our selfish motivations are exposed, and a lot of times it happens this way if you're in a conversation, you say, hey, listen, listen, it's not really about this, but, <laughs> and then you go on to say, it is really about this, right? It's not really about the money, but... Let's talk about the money, right? It's not, really about, it's not really about me, but here's how this impacts me, right? And so in our own life, if we're, if we're, if we're going into something and we're saying, hey, it's, no, it's, it's not really about this, but it's a good indication that maybe you need to check your motivation. You need to be able to say that with total integrity. And, and if you say that it's not really about this, is, is that true? And are we willing to do the, the work to investigate our own motivations? I can tell you it's not easy. It's not, and often it's not pleasant because it exposes parts of our heart that we wish weren't in there. Like, wow, it, it actually really is all about the money. I just want more money, right? Then what do you do with that? What do you do when it's exposed? That's, that's the question. When, when your motivations are revealed as less than ideal, are you willing to repent and to change and to bring it before Jesus? The second motivation, the first was material gain. The second that we see is this, this selfish personal agenda. And this is on display in the crowd. We see that the crowd, it tells us right here in Scripture, um, that they were coming to Jesus because they had heard about what he had done with Lazarus. They had heard about this incredible miracle, and they, they were saying, hey, we want to see the next fireworks display, right? We want to see the next time that Jesus does something incredible and amazing, and, uh, and, and this, is, this is a depiction of, of what we call Palm Sunday in the church. But it's interesting, in John's description of Palm Sunday, he just kind of like blows right by it, right? Because John is, is really concerned with the motivation of the crowd. And so if the crowd is coming and bowing before Jesus as king, but they're doing it uh, but not out of a true heart of understanding and knowing him, it's almost like John's saying, like, yeah, you know, this happened. <laughs> but they didn't really get it. They didn't really understand. There's... there's they wanted a king to lead them, but, but not the humble, suffering, dying king that Jesus is. 
And so as he's coming in, a, a warrior king would have found the, a giant white stallion to ride on, right? He would, he would have found the finest Arabian horse in, in all of Jerusalem to, to ride in in procession. But instead, we're told in fulfillment of Scripture that he found a young colt of a donkey. And, uh, and when we think of donkeys, we think of animals that are, you know, similar in size, maybe a little bit smaller than a horse. And in, in this time, in this part of the world, the donkeys were much smaller. And so you actually had to like kind of bend your knees and lift them up to be able to ride on, like kind of like when you're riding one of your kids' toys that you really shouldn't be riding, you know what I mean? And so it's this picture of, they're like, here comes the king, here he comes. And he comes around the corner and it's Jesus on this humble little donkey. And, and essentially what he's saying is, yes, I am the king, but I'm not the king that you expect. I'm not here to do what you, you think I'm going to do. I'm not here uh, to, to be a part of your agenda for what you want me to do. I'm, I'm here for something much greater than that. There's these kind of layers of reinforcement that happen in John. So if you remember, uh, he did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and then the people were chasing him around the lake, and he said to him, hey, you just, you're just looking for more bread. And it's kind of the same thing here, that they heard about what he did with Lazarus and they were just hoping for another miracle. And in the same way that we saw last week, the high priest prophesied about Jesus uh, inadvertently. Uh, he, he did it in a way that he didn't realize what he was saying, but he said, hey, it's better that one man die than, uh, than the whole nation dies. Dave shared with us last week. And, and the crowd, in, in, in a similar way, is doing something similar to this today. They're they're really referencing, when they say Hosanna, they're referencing Psalm 118. And I don't think that they realized what they were doing. I don't think they had an understanding. Um, but, but they were referencing this psalm that gives this clear depiction of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And listen to what it says in Psalm 118, uh, verse, verse 19 and, and following. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. And the Hebrew word for that is Hosanna. And so when they're saying Hosanna, this is the only place that it shows up in the Old Testament, right here in this psalm. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And so the crowd is saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, but what they don't realize is what they're really saying is, here comes our king, the king that is the sacrifice. He's the one who's going to be bound to the altar. He's the one that's going to be tied to the cross and nailed to the cross and lifted up and sacrificed for them. And so they're proclaiming this truth about Jesus, but they don't even realize the depth of the truth. And this is a reflection of this, this kind of intricate dance that, that happens in our life. As Christians, we come to Jesus because we have an agenda, do we not? We're drawn to Jesus because there's something broken in our life. There's something missing. There's something that we need. Jesus, I need you to, to break me of this addiction. Jesus, I need to, you to, to heal my, my financial situation. Jesus, my, my relationships are broken. I'm lonely. I, I need to feel loved. I need to feel secure. And so, so we come to him because we recognize that there's a hole in our heart and nothing that we've tried to do has filled it. And we come to realize that only Jesus can fill that hole. But 
Once we get there, we find that it's true that he can do what we're asking him to do, but he actually wants to do so much more. That's only the beginning. <laughs> we come and say, hey, Jesus, if you could just check off this list, I'll be good to go, and I won't trouble you anymore, and I won't bother you anymore. But he says, no, now that you're here, let me show you what life is really all about. Let me show you what your purpose is. You just wanted your, your checking account to be straightened out, but Jesus wants you to become an adopted son or daughter of the king. He wants to give your life meaning. He wants to show to you the good works that he has created you to do. And so, so what he wants for us is different and far better than anything that we want for ourselves. And then we have a choice. We can either submit and go through the process of being transformed and changed by him into this new and better thing, or we can resist him and say, hey, Jesus, I, I was just in to kind of get my relationship squared away. I, I, I don't know if I want the rest of it, right? And that puts us in an incredibly frustrating situation. It puts us in a situation where we're now going against the will of the one, the one who saved us. Um. Uh, somebody, I think, Danielle, I think it was you shared this week a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. Sorry, this buzz is like bothering me. Sorry. You guys probably can't even hear it. And it's like, for me, it's like building, right? But uh, there's this thing from C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to butcher it. But basically, the idea was this, that, um, that, that he comes to, re we think of ourselves as a house, right? And he comes to renovate us. And so he starts fixing some of the broken things, and we like that. The leaks are getting repaired, and, and the noisy buzz is taken care of. And, and, uh, and, we, and we feel good about that. But then before long, he starts busting down walls. And he starts adding additional wings, and he starts building things up. And, and what C.S. Lewis said is that, that we thought that he was just coming to fix our house, but he was turning us into a palace in which he wanted to dwell, right? Isn't that good? I wish I was C.S. Lewis. His stuff's way better than mine. But, but that encapsulates what's happening here, and, and we see this. And here's what I love about the crowd, right? The crowd was following Jesus because they wanted bread. And then Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood... You can't be with me. And so they left him. But then they heard about him healing Lazarus and raising him from the dead, and so then they came back to him. But then later on in the week, uh, they said, uh, the Pharisees rounded them up, and they said, what should we do with Jesus? And they shouted, crucify him. Give us Barabbas instead, and they turned their back on him. But then at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and Peter came and preached, we heard that thousands of them came to a lasting, saving belief and faith in Jesus. And so there's hope for the crowd, right? There's hope for Jesus to redeem our selfish motivations. And so if you came to Jesus with a, with a selfish agenda, join the crowd. We all did, right? But the opportunity is there for Jesus to do so much more than our limited scope, our limited sight, our limited ask that we would ask of him. The third thing that we see is, as far as broken motivations here is, is a fear of man. We're told that many of the Pharisees believed in Jesus, but outwardly they denied him for fear of man, for fear of losing their position, for fear of punishment, for fear of being put out of the synagogue. Friends, if, if you're ever part of a church in which you're worried that if you profess your faith and love for Jesus that you'll be put out of that church, it's good to be put out of that church, right? If you're going to be put out of the church for loving the Savior, for loving Jesus, that's not a church. But, but we all wrestle with this, do we not? We, we all struggle with the fear of man. 
So many of our decisions that we make in our daily life are about, oh, but what are they going to think? Oh, man, if I do that, but what are they going to say? Uh, but, oh, but what is this person going to say? We, well, we saw, uh, you know, uh, great examples. Chris, two weeks ago, and, and Richard, uh, just last week, of getting baptized. And let me tell you, friends, when, when you get baptized, there are going to be people who don't get it. There's going to be people who don't understand. There's going to be people that, 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 that question. And if, and if you let that keep you from coming, then you'll never come because there's always going to be doubters. Maybe you're here and you've come to faith in Jesus and you feel that tug of like, oh, I know the next step in obedience is going to be baptism, but I just, I don't know that I have the courage to do it. I don't know that I, let me, let me discourage you. Let me give you a demotivator here. <laughs> if you get baptized, there will always be people who don't understand it. There will always be people who, who question you. But don't let that be the reason that you don't do it. Obedience to Jesus is so much more important, and, and the, the, to bless and, and, and to honor God is so much more important than honoring man. And if you do that, man, there's so many things that God will do through you. And we see a picture of that in Mary as we shift to the good motivations here, right? Mary and Martha, I love these guys. They're, uh, they're an amazing family along with their brother, brother Lazarus. They're, uh, they're some of Jesus' closest friends. And they're dysfunctional. They're kind of messed up, right? Like we saw a couple weeks ago that Martha is like cleaning the house. We've got guests coming over. Jesus is coming. She's cooking dinner. And Mary is just sitting there listening to Jesus. And Martha goes up and is like, Jesus, tell her to help me. And Jesus is like, hey, she's chosen the better thing to sit here and listen to me. You're worried about a lot of things, but she's chosen what's better. But Jesus said that out of love to Martha. And later when, when Lazarus is sick, we're told in the passage that Dave just read last week that Jesus loved Mary and he loved Martha, and he loved Lazarus. He loved them all. My wife Katrina and I, um, we were both Marthas. Any Marthas in the house here, right? Our, our couple nickname is Martha and Martha Incorporated. Like, that's what, <laughs> it can be a great thing. Sometimes it's, it's, a, it's the root of our sin, and we have to repent of it. Um, but I just love this picture of, right, Lazarus has risen from the dead. Their brother was dead for four days. They were worried that he was going to stink because he was dead. And Jesus brings him out of the grave and he's back in their life and they are celebrating. And now Jesus is coming to their house. And so Martha does her Martha thing, right? She gets the table set up. She cooks the meal. She's doing all this stuff. And Mary goes and gets her jar of perfume and says, you know what's the best thing I could do right now? Break this on Jesus' feet and just use my hair to just, just clean his feet and just extravagantly express love. And I, and I kind of picture Martha walking in with her trays of stuff, right, to the dinner table, and she's sitting them down, and she, like, catches out of the side of her eye, and she's like, okay, <laughs> right? And she, she's like, that's my sister. That's how she loves Jesus. This is how I love Jesus, and it's okay, right? Because Jesus doesn't have to correct her this time. She got it. She says, you know what? Mary loves Jesus that way. I love Jesus this way. And Judas is the one who's, who, who, who ends up getting great. Isn't it amazing how so many times when somebody shows extravagant love for God in the Bible, when people question them, God immediately comes to their defense. If you want to make sure that you've got God on your side, be extravagant in your love for him. Be outrageous in the way that you glorify him. He loves that. And be careful if you criticize others who are, who are doing that, right? <laughs> if they're pouring out an offering for Jesus, he receives that well. We don't know why uh, Mary had this perfume. There's scholars speculate a number of things about it. 
Um, but but I, I'm willing to say this. She didn't buy that perfume thinking that she was going to use it on Jesus. She had been saving it for a long time, or maybe she had been saving up the funds that she went and used them. But here's what happened. Listen to this, what happened to her motivation. She was saving up resources. She was saving up this perfume. She had a purpose in mind. But when Jesus revealed himself to her, she suddenly realized that the greatest thing she could do with anything that she had was to glorify Jesus. She had this perfume and she said, I was saving this for whatever, but you know what the best thing I could do is honor my Savior. Man, what if we adopt that motivation into our life? What if you start to look at your possessions, your talents, your relationships, your family, and say, man, God, the greatest thing that I could do with any of these things is bring glory to your name. Man, what kind of life would you live? What kind of example? And I challenge you, let's not leave it theoretical. Let's not say what if. Try it. Look at your bank account and say, God, the, me- the best thing I can do with this is to glorify you. And I know that you've told me that, um, that you know that I need stuff to eat and you know that I need clothes to wear and you know that I need shelter over my head, but, but you've told me to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if I do, that all these things will be added unto me. Man, that's a, Mary's a beautiful picture of that sort of motivation, but ultimately the best picture of that is Jesus himself. He says some amazing things here. Uh, the first thing he shows us is that there is a cost to glorifying God. There's a cost to glorifying God, but it is worth it. Verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And in verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I love this. I love this because our temptation is to think, man, if I'm doing it right, I won't experience worry. I won't experience anxiety. I won't experience fear. I won't experience doubt. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, my soul is troubled. The sinless Savior of the world says, man, my soul is disturbed. My soul is troubled. I know what's coming and I know the great cost that is about to be required, and my soul is troubled because of it, but, but what am I going to say? Take this away? This is the whole reason that I'm here. So instead he says, Father, glorify your name. Man, what if we looked at our troubles that way? What if we looked at the difficulties in our life that way? What if we said, God, I'm troubled. My soul is troubled by what I'm experiencing right now. I'm, uh, I, I, I'm not settled. I'm not comfortable but I know that you love me. I know that you're in control. And if you've allowed this to happen, then I have to believe that you can be glorified through it. And so, Father, glorify your name. And if I can put a selfish request in there, I'd love to see how you're going to glorify your name because <laughs> that would help me sleep at night a little bit better. But you don't owe me that. You may glorify your name through this in a way that I will never know or see or experience. I may never hear the story until I get to heaven of what you did through this. But I'm just asking you, God, glorify your name. Man, if you answer that, how much does God love to answer that prayer? The other thing that Jesus says, and he shows us, is that he finds his greatest purpose in being totally submitted to the Father. 
In verse 49, he says this. Yeah, he says, I have spoken, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus found his greatest purpose in being totally submitted to the Father. His greatest purpose, his greatest, his greatest aim in life was to be totally submitted to the Father. That's how he found joy. Now think about this compared to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve thought that the greatest source of joy that they could find would be in freedom from the Father. They thought that if they were independent, they thought if I eat this apple, then I will be like God and I'll know the difference between good and evil and I'll no longer be dependent on God and I'll be free. And every one of us has struggled with the result of that to this day. And it's so counterintuitive, but what Jesus, the, the sinless Son of God, the Savior, what he says is the way to freedom, the way to purpose, the way to hope is total and complete submission to the Father. It's not independence. It's not autonomy. It's not control. It's letting go of all those things and being completely submitted to the Father. Man, that's heavy, right? <laughs> I don't know exactly what that looks like in my life, but I can put that into my spiritual GPS and I can say, start driving me towards that, right? I can say, that's the ambition, that's the motivation of my life. And, and one step at a time, one decision at a time, one motivation at a time, I can say, Lord, I want to glorify you and I want to submit to you. If you pray that simple prayer before every decision that you make, Lord, I want to glorify you, and I want to submit to your will in this. Now, here's the situation. What would you have me do? Man, how powerful can that be in our lives? Ultimately, Jesus says, hey, I'm not here today to judge. I'm not going to be pulling out a sword. I'm not separating the sheep from the goats today. What I'm here to do today is to bring you salvation. I'm here to give you hope. But let me also give you a warning. The words that I'm proclaiming, they will stand in judgment over you if you don't submit to them. He says, on judgment day, it's my words that I've spoken. Those that have heard my words and have failed to believe them, it's my words that will bring judgment on you. It's not your actions. It's not your deeds. It's your obedience to Jesus. And so here's what he says. He says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Verse 45, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Do you believe that today? Jesus offers hope, but he also warns that those are words of judgment if we fail to receive them. My prayer for you today is that you would receive them. Jesus is the light. He's the Son of God. He lived a perfect life and he died in your place so that your sin would no longer separate you from him. And what the Bible says is that we receive that as a free gift by faith. He wants to give it to you. Not after you've cleaned yourself up, not after, not after you've made yourself ready. Today, right now, if you believe that that is who Jesus is and you believe that that's what he's done, then the gift of salvation can be yours. And I'm going to offer you a chance right now just to, to say a prayer. If you would bow your head, close your eyes. If you're here, and you're prepared to receive Jesus today as your Savior, I just want to ask you to say this prayer. You say, Heavenly Father, 
I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for the forgiveness of my sins. Because of him, I believe I'm forgiven. By faith, I ask you to receive me as your child. And I thank you for the extravagant gift that you've given to me. Teach me what it means to follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.